Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone. Today, for this episode, we are uh, chatting with Jonathan Bisk. We wanted to talk about grounded language understanding. Jonathan Bisk is currently an assistant professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you so much. This is exciting and fun. So, right. uh, We wanted to talk about grounded language understanding and uh, we wanted to do an overview of the topic first. And uh, then we wanted to talk about uh, your recent benchmark, uh, Alfred. Before we get there, can you please um, tell us what exactly you mean by grounded language understanding? Yeah, so I think it's a pretty broad term, and at the risk of being somewhat controversial, I would I would sort of classify it as basically any time that you're using, so let's say, NLP tools outside of the context of just text. And so specifically, most of my work is going to look at that, connecting that maybe to action taking or some amount of images, but it's a it's sort of a broader question, right? So I think that if you throw to people like a lot of uh, Joyce Chai's older work on, for instance, gaze and gesture, or L.P. Morency's work on sort of reading facial faces and, and how they're emoting. Those are all aspects of language, which are sort of not coded for in the text. And so grounded language understanding means that you are understanding language, you're processing language while privy to all of those additional signals, and therefore also in a sort of broader notion of semantics than maybe was accessible if you were just looking at text. I have a, a question on that. I've I've thought of grounded understanding. Like, to me, it seems reasonable to talk about grounding one piece of text in the context of another piece of text. And this is not like some extra textual signal, but it is like separate from the original text that you're doing. And I'm wondering what you think about this. Yeah, so this is this is sort of the standard fun little debate that I find myself in, which is if grounding simply means that there is that you're connecting language to some meaning representation, then there's nothing about that meaning representation that's required to be, for instance, multimodal. But colloquially, I think most of us, when we're using it, are talking about grounding as in the world and where the world is the sort of perceptual world that humans have, and. If we want to sort of jump philosophical for a second, I think that what's interesting about this discussion is that if you were to ask people colloquially how like language is learned or understood for like a child, they would talk about the importance of, you know, building Legos and and pointing to things and stuff like this. But then when we talk about the like what's required for language learning or understanding in NLP, we're like, oh, well, if you had a database, that's probably fine. And I think that sort of philosophically, we're just maybe falling on two different sides of that, where those of us doing sort of more the multimodal side tend to try to align the research agenda to that same intuition we have about children versus I completely agree with you. If I wanted to build a rich QA system, then grounding to a database is probably sort of the sufficient or right approach. That makes sense. Uh, you did briefly mention some of the tasks that people have been working on that is uh, that can be called grounded language understanding. But can you give us uh, more concrete examples of uh, some tasks and what the uh, high-level research goals are there, there are in those tasks? Yeah, there's a couple of things that have gotten pretty popular in sort of the last few years, which I can touch on. Before I do that, I think I'll maybe pop up a level and say like sort of The way I tend to view the space is if I think of, for instance, roboticists as my customer and I'm an NLP person, what tool can I hand them? What what sort of package could I hand them that they could actually use? 
And right now, the answer to that is basically that I don't have one because what we're seeing is that the sort of semantics uh, doesn't match. And so whether it's the the sort of really foundational work of like Stephanie Tellex or Cynthia Matuzic, who are trying to do language instruction following with robots, or some of the sort of more recent work in navigation and simulation, this kind of is the Matterport room to room, things like this. It's not clear that the semantics that you get out of even the largest pre-trained model for left and right or different colors or, um, you know, s- simple action taking actually correspond to something that's useful for, for grounding in the real world. And so, so that, that's the kind of disconnect. And therefore, the space of tasks is actually quite broad because I think it's, it's if we're thinking about the idea that someday we'd like to have, which is also the motivation for Alfred, someday we'd like to have a sort of robot butler in our house what are all the possible sort of intermediaries and semantic issues that you're going to run into when you're trying to to bridge that? So to make that more concrete for you, yeah. So there's definitely the entire community, um, for instance, of human-robot interaction, which is asking this question, which is how do I actually connect language to to control there? Control meaning potentially even uh, real valued outputs like motor control kinds of things. And then you have the sort of more recent sort of popular space where it's a little easier to uh, taskify, if you will, which is navigation and simulation or sort of the visual question answering, visual common sense types of types of tasks. And those are, I think, important prerequisites to that larger goal, but they're also more popular at the moment because it's just easier to, you know, to run a leaderboard than have a robot and have a human actually interacting with it. And so that's maybe kind of a broad answer to the, to the question, but I can dive into any of those if, uh, more deeply if you want. Yeah, let's talk about the mismatch in semantics. I think that's quite interesting. Uh, can you give a concrete example there and uh, we can maybe talk more about it? Yeah, so there's sort of a couple of classic examples, and I, and I want to caution that some of these examples are changing because obviously these technologies are changing rapidly. The sort of my favorite one, if we were to go back a few years, would be the fact that uh, we've always known that antonyms and synonyms in embedding space were hard to distinguish, and we didn't really spend a lot of time on that in NLP. But it's actually really important if you're going to turn left versus turn right. Or it's really important that colors not get lumped together because they're actually sort of orthogonal in a lot of contexts. If I'm saying I want the red one versus the blue one, those are antonyms. It doesn't matter that they're both, it does matter that they're both colors in the sense that it maybe constrains my search space a little bit, but it doesn't, they're not interchangeable. And so those kinds of things have, have meant that we can't sort of take something off the shelf and hand it to someone who's doing actual, you know, manipulation or interaction. And this is sort of, there's another level to this, which is a little bit more nuanced perhaps, which is that most of the time when we think about action taking, and this is true in simulation, and it's true in the context of generating semantic parts or whatever, is that we think in terms of discrete output spaces. And so as language people, we think, oh, I've got discrete input, I'm doing discrete output. But if I really wanted to connect down to a robot, uh, whether it was manipulation in the sense that I have a hand that's going to grab something and I have to control every single joint of that arm and those fingers, or whether it's an actual robot that's that's uh, a mobile robot that has wheels, then you're actually not outputting discrete actions at all. You're discrete. You're you know you need to output motor torques, and so how do you convert then the concept of left? into a certain amount of motor torque? How do you convert the concept of opening 
into a sequence of motor control actions that cause you to, let's say, grab the top of a Coke bottle and the bottom with a hold steady and twist. That conversion is non-trivial. And I think the argument that I would typically hear from an NLP person is, but I don't care, right? Because what does it matter that there's uh, sort of these fine-grained distinctions? That's on the other side of a sort of a conceptual API boundary, if you will. What I care about is that I'm opening, or I care about is that I've turned or something. But I think that to this comment about semantic mismatch, you actually do want a lot of that information. If you want to know if something flows or not, you want it like a liquid, you want to know if something is deformable or not. The fact that you know that you can fold a blanket or that the fact that you know that you can more easily crush a empty uh, water bottle than a full water bottle, that's all meaning that really should be in the representation for full water bottle versus empty water bottle. So how am I supposed to get that information if I don't have access to the control, if I don't have access to the manipulation? And some of this I realize is pie in the sky. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that everyone go out and buy a robot right now and switch their entire research agendas, but, I, but more just to recognize that there's a lot of meaning that we have access to in these word representations when we talk about, in this case, empty versus full, that you don't have access to if you're simply uh, pulling from text or if you've even if you're grounded, but you've abstracted away the manipulation aspects. Yeah, I guess what what seems to me as one who has not really thought about these issues all that much is that the hard question is, what is the, the right abstraction layer to think about these problems? Because clearly, like you, you mentioned opening a bottle where like you grasp the bottom and twist the top or something. And that presupposes a particular robot with actuators. And our, our language representation or whatever we're like, if you want to grab something off the shelf, it, it's going to have to be robot dependent if you want to use it at that level. Yeah, this is you're absolutely correct. And this is part of what I love about this space. And this is also why this is so hard. I just had a conversation uh, last week at a CVPR panel with uh, Yana Koseka about this, where she was basically saying, the number one problem that we have is that we don't know what the right sort of abstraction barriers are between these levels and how to learn them. Because it's not just that uh, the specific actuators, which is what you brought up, it's also the specific bottle. Opening a wine bottle is a different thing. Opening a cabinet is a different thing. And language is full of these kinds of situations where we're really not talking about control. We're really talking about post conditions. We don't even when we say to turn left, we're not even really saying that you should act, execute the action left. What we're really saying is get your body into a space such that it is now, you know, satisfies the condition left. Right. If you turned right three times, that would also be fine. So the this sort of understanding of how do we transition between those things and, and this really fascinating question, I think, to me, is how do you learn those abstractions in the first place? And just to ramble for a little bit longer on this particular point, I'm going to sort of throw to a really nice transition that I think we've seen, for instance, out of Yoav Artsy's lab, where a lot of his work, which is really foundational in the semantic parsing space, has transitioned to this continuous control. And that's because increasingly it becomes hard, like you can't justify those predicates. So the predicates that you we were so good at getting language to map to it turned out we couldn't necessarily implement on a device. And so therefore, we had chosen the wrong abstraction as language people, and we needed to sort of learn from, from the sort of the real world. Don't know what that looks like. I think one thing that I've been trying to do is at least talk in terms of XYZ coordinates. 
So if I sort of, I don't know how your robot arm is going to get to this position, but I do know that the object is at least at said position in space. So that's kind of a little bit closer, uh, throwing a little bit of a bone. But yes, this is a key question. And if we want to go really philosophical, the open that we're talking about here is still more concrete than the open of opening a conversation or I think like, so, so the fact that we're able to use the same word at all these different levels is another fascinating question about, about this space. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I like the connection you made with Yoav's switch from like what you might call traditional semantic parsing into this like instruction following. I feel like I've kind of done the same thing where I've gone from like translating questions or language to like database queries to trying to operate on open domain paragraphs. And there you need like something like a neural module network or something similar that tries to expand this a little bit. Just an interesting connection. Right. I mean, many of the examples you gave so far are about, uh, say, robots uh, interacting with some some sort of an environment. Is that generally the high-level goal of most of these systems where you have an agent interacting with an environment and you have some rewards uh, coming from it? Is that usually uh, the right abstraction? Yeah, I... You know, I don't want to speak for people in general. I like to joke that um, we all really wish we just had a Terminator we could raise as our own child, and that's going to require uh, a few new technological advances. But yeah, I think fundamentally it's that we want a robot is just a mobile computer that can actually not just move through the world, but ideally can can affect the world. And that's the goal. And that just requires different language. That being said, I don't want to dismiss for example, some really fundamental work that, that's being done on sort of multimodal representations, which maybe doesn't have a direct application there yet. So it's not the case that we have solved fusion. So just because you have a, you know, the, the, the penultimate layer of a ResNet mo- sort of model that's d- detection, and you have the, the CLS token embedding from BERT, doesn't mean that concatenating them means congratulations, we're now multimodal and and we've done everything. For all intents and purposes, you may still basically be turning, let's say, the vision signal into symbols and then sort of doing some similar kind of simple manipulation on it. Or you may be solving a task which doesn't actually require that much information out of the visual signal. So there's this more basic, perhaps, machine learning question, which is how do you actually do multimodal fusion? How do you build representations that are enhanced by both, where information flows both directions? And we don't have answers to things like that. And th- those types, that type of research oftentimes doesn't have a, an actual robot or doesn't have sort of a like some large-scale image resource that it's maybe working on. But I still think it's really important to the larger question. Yeah, okay. Uh, makes sense. And I guess I'm beginning to realize that uh, grounded language understanding as a topic is much bigger than I had originally imagined. So that's good. Uh, I, I guess it's a, it's a more general definition. And also, I think, I, I guess I had imagined uh, when we talk about agents versus environments, I mean, agents working in environments, that kind of a setup, we usually think about um, some sort of a re- reinforcement learning kind of a learning paradigm, uh, which is not generally applicable to all grounding problems, probably, right? Yeah, I don't think of it as, I don't think they're sort of at odds or necessary. It's there, it's just, it's one, it's one technique that makes sense in this, in this space. I think the reason that we think of RL in grounded environments is again, related to this issue of sort of representations. We don't have the luxury typically of actually training successfully from scratch, 
So if we take something like locomotion, we really don't want to, okay, you could imagine, for instance, that we set up a task, which is that I'm going to have a language instruction paired with an agent walking. And if I set that up as a purely supervised task, where even in the best of case, I collect 10,000, 20,000 examples, that's really not going to be enough for me to learn the locomotion. And so what is what is RL, what does self-play enable? It enables the agent to build some alinguistic or prelinguistic primitives, which it, we can then attach language to. And I think this is not dissimilar from what we expect to get out of a child, right? So the child has some notion of the world. It has some notion of gravity. It has some notion of the maybe the pets that it's interacted with, things like this, long before it gets the label for those things. And so it's really just a question of how much sort of prior knowledge you are allowing the agent to build up versus assuming that you're going to be able to learn all that at the same time as language. And, and generally speaking, that latter approach is just not going to be as successful. Great. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's generally a pretty good overview of uh, grounded language understanding. And I, yeah, that, w- that was useful for me to hear. Let's talk about Alfred, the specific benchmark that uh, you've been working on. And uh, you even have a workshop at ECCV where it's sort of like a shared task. Right? So c- can you give us a high level description of uh, what exactly is an Alfred and uh, what systems built for Alfred need to achieve? Yeah, so I'm going to try to be sort of as as honest and transparent about its limitations as possible, because I think that what we're trying to do with Alfred is one baby step in this direction of this larger goal, right? So we named it Alfred because it's this sort of butler paradigm. So uh, if we all want these household butler robots, that there's a long way to go from the only really commodity robot right now is a Roomba. So if, if you think of if we're at Roomba level and we want Butler level, we've got we've got a pretty big gap there. And so then the question became, what are a couple of sort of component technologies or abilities that are important along the way there? And so we decided to focus on both extending the existing kind of navigation paradigm that's been really popular in simulation to having a little bit more interaction, specifically having a notion of things like post conditions or immutable state changes. So the fact that something can go from dirty to clean, the fact that something can get cut or cooked, these are important. And we can talk about some of why that is in a second. And then also moving to uh, longer horizons. So in the room-to-room navigation, which has been sort of really important for this work in the last couple of years, we, if I recall correctly, the average trajectory length is something like six or seven steps. So the mapping from the language to the action is actually not I don't want to say it's not hard. We've all worked on it quite, quite a bit, but it's comparatively maybe simple compare, uh, when you think about that how, how many sort of smaller steps actually need to be taken if you had a robot that was moving through the world. So I may be getting a little bit too into the nitty gritty there. So let me pop up a level and, and say that the paradigm is you're in the Thor house environment. You're in one of the rooms. You have uh, randomly instantiated objects and positions, and you have some high-level goal described in language and some lower-level goals described in language that you need to accomplish. And the example I use is typically something like put a clean apple in the fridge. We as sort of 
as humans can can take that and even though we haven't been in this kitchen, even though we haven't seen any of these things, can instantiate a basic program in our minds. I'm going to need to find an apple. I'm probably going to need to run it underwater in the sink. I'm going to need to turn off the water. I'm going to need to put it in the fridge. And so then the question is, how do we train systems to do that, including the simplified manipulation and keeping track of their progress? Just really quick, you mentioned Thor that I don't think has been explained, and uh, that it's just a simulated simulated environment and like built with a game engine. That's right. That's right. So this is so AI two Thor is a Unity uh, game engine based simulated environment where they've got custom assets that have been built for a bunch of different rooms. So we've got there's living rooms, bathrooms, kitchens bedrooms, I may be forgetting something. And then there are certain objects that occur in one versus the other. So towels in the bathroom and apples in the in the kitchen, things like this. And these are all articulated in the sense that, for instance, a cabinet can open, an apple can be picked up, things like this. And so this is different from there's a lot of really awesome simulators that look specifically at the navigation task. And so they're more interested in having sort of a really good visual scene, but maybe not one that you can actually poke around in. And so th- that's that's sort of the key sort of step here in terms of moving towards a real robot. We'll talk about the specifics of how exactly the data set was uh, constructed a little later, but can you describe to us how uh, the Alpha data set is different from prior grounding data sets? Yeah, so it's it's really the fact that we're dealing with these kind of longer horizon interaction changes. So I, I hesitate to sort of jump too low level uh, too quickly here, but let's take, a, let's take a couple of features. So if we have to actually move around a grid that's not as realistic as motor control you know and continuous actions but it is more realistic than being able to hop to another sort of location in the world so it means that all of a sudden even something as simple as walking to the counter is you know set takes several steps and you need to keep track of oh well when I'm turning, I can no longer see the counter, but that's okay. I'm still sort of en route to it. So how do I sort of maintain state? How do I remember what I'm doing? The fact that you have state changes that are not reverse, uh, that can't be reversed is also an important component. So if I make a mistake and I cook something, I can't uncook it, which means that this whole episode is just a failure. And that's different from if you think about a standard navigation domain where I can always sort of reverse and back up. And that allows me to do things like search in that space that I can't do in, in the real world. And uh, the the sort of maybe third part is that we sort of, we tried to structure it specifically around uh, pretty common robotic tasks. So the simplest of which is called pick and place. So it's just literally what it sounds like. Can I pick something up and can I put it in a specific location? And then, and then building from there. So for instance, if you have a receptacle, can I pick something up? Can I pick an apple up, put it in a bowl, then pick up the bowl with the apple and place it in the microwave, things like this. And these sound very simple and conceptually they are, but each time you do this, you have an extra interaction component, which is harder. How do I select the apple? How do I select the faucet? And you have a, an increasingly long trajectory, which is also somewhat rare in this space, which is that I have maybe the same amount of, of language text, but I have a lot more low-level actions I need to perform. And this is, again, just trying to bridge that gap towards the realism. We're still not at the level of fine grain that would re- be required if I actually had a hand that was that had to go grasp the apple. But it's, it's a step towards that. 
Right. So you mentioned uh, uh, navigation and how it's uh, the grid-based navigation that's in Alfred, right? And uh, the paper makes a distinction between grid-based or discrete navigation versus graph-based navigation. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What exactly does it mean? Yeah. So graph. So graph-based is kind of an, an unintuitive term, but they, it's actually something we're all familiar with. It's it's basically Google Street View. So when you're in Google Street View, you click next, you basically hop to some some future point, and you hop at a point at, um, in a way that is much larger granularity than if you were to actually walk there. And so in our case, again, still a simplification. It's a grid. So now it's maybe ten steps instead of one step to do that hop. And then in an ideal case, it would be continuous, right? So it would be really, you know, infinitely fine-grained. Okay, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And the other interesting distinction that the paper mentions is uh, egocentric versus uh, third-person visual observations. Uh, So is that about uh, how much of the environment the agent can see? Yeah, so there's, I'm going to maybe make two distinctions because, so first of all, everyone who's working in the in the simulated agent space is thinking egocentric. And so first, let me maybe motivate why egocentric. And then the second question is basically how well instrumented that is. So why egocentric is because, again, that's a more realistic setting. So if you imagine that you wanted to have a robot which had perfect vision of the of the entire kitchen and you wanted to do that in the real world, that would mean setting up cameras all around the entire kitchen, maybe the entire ceiling, kind of um, if you're familiar with sort of the Amazon Go grocery stores, it's that it's that style of model, which is you just have, I mean, it's amazing the, the number of cameras that are in there to get you from every single view. And that is awesome. It allows you to have basically perfect localization of everything. But if we now consider, for instance, when when we're cooking or when we're grocery shopping or we're doing something, something with our own two eyes, every time we turn our head, everything disappears. So there's this really important memory component, which is that like if I was looking at a dish and then I turn to my cabinet, I can't forget where the dish is. I have to have that in a, in a mental model. I don't have perfect sort of localization of it anymore. And so how do you build models that are able to do that? Now, we're not unique in that space, but one of the things that people are thinking about adding both to Alfred and that exists in some of the other navigation is an in-between state. There's no, there's an argument here that if you're going to build a simulated agent, while it may be prohibitively expensive to instrument an entire house with cameras, it doesn't necessarily make sense, on the other hand, to limit it to be as, I don't know, as simple as humans are. So just because humans only have two eyes doesn't mean a robot has to only have two eyes. So why can't a robot, for example, in the way that a self-driving car has 360 vision, have, have that? And so that still means that things occasionally are occluded, things are not necessarily visible, you don't have all angles, but you do have a much wider sort of panoramic view. In our current version, we don't use panoramic views. But I know that some people are working on those extensions, and that is pretty common in the navigation space. And so that way you can see behind you and things like this. So these are some of the decisions, yeah. Can you give an example of a problem in uh, Alfred that makes it challenging to perform with uh, an egocentric view? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically just any, it's anytime you're looking for something. This is maybe a little bit hard to do without visuals, but let's imagine that I, I want to walk to the counter. And so I, I see the counter in front of me, but there's a table that's blocking my path. So in order to in order to get to the counter, I'm going to have to turn away from looking at it. 
so that I can walk, let's say, to my left, and then I'm going to turn, and then so that I and now can see it again. But then I'm going to turn to my right in order to get in front of that of the table. And then I'm turning. So there's let's say fifty percent of those navigation actions are ones where the counter that I am aiming at is not visible. If I have panoramic vision, I do have to. It's not trivial. I can now see where the counter is at all times, but I do need to reconcile that with my heading. And if I have an overhead bird's eye full perfect vision, then it's sort of trivial. It's because I know exactly where I am. I know where everything is. And, and so th that's the distinction. That's the spectrum. Great. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, what exactly is an Alfred and the specifics of how the data set is built. So I know that I've read that uh, Alfred comes with these um, language directives paired with uh, expert uh, demonstrations. Uh, can you describe how exactly they were built? Yeah, so the idea there is that we're going to define things in terms of post conditions. And this is kind of a um, throwing a bone to that earlier conversation we were having about kind of what is the goal of language and, and such. So if we define some post conditions, which are, for example, that uh, using the, the what I said earlier, uh, let's say there's a clean apple in the fridge then I should really throw, uh, also mention, which I haven't apologized up until this point. So Mohit Sridhar is the first author and like and, and gets sort of the most credit for, for all of this. And so what he implemented there was this a planner that could basically have perfect knowledge of the world and so therefore could go through a series of discrete actions in order to accomplish some, some post conditions. So you would say, I need a world configuration such that there is an apple which has a flag set as clean and a location set as in the in the fridge. And so now what are the sequence of steps that are required to do that? And so you have to, so he uses a standard a standard uh, PDDL planner here, but you could imagine any number of, of ways to try to get that trajectory. What's PDDL? What does that stand for? This is one of those pieces of homework I should definitely have done. It's a planning domain definition language. So basically you have to specify the set of actions that, that can be taken in this universe, you have to s sort of specify the set of success conditions. And then the stand you can think of any sort of standard standard planning algorithm that you that you learned about in intro to AI. You're, so now you're just running that through this space in order to in order to get a trajectory. In particular, get the shortest path trajectory. So in the end, we are you do have to pick some abstraction and map language to that abstraction somewhere. Yeah, and exactly. And in this case, it's basically the set of API calls. And that's, we can get into this more in a second, but, but we've tried to use that where necessary and then avoid it where we can. So for example, you could imagine that one of your API calls would be pick up Apple, and it would just sort of magic the Apple into your hand. That's something that we tried to, tried to avoid. And the way we did it was with pixel level masks. So the way that you actually select an apple is that you produce a binary mask on the, on the image, on sort of what you're seeing, and you outline the thing that you're going to interact with. And then we use, basically, if the majority of what you've selected is, is an object, that object gets the sort of pickup action in this case. And that takes you uh, sort of a tiny step closer towards manipulation. This is really interesting to think about. I've studied a lot recently on generalization in semantic parsing. So we are mapping language to these sequences of actions. They're not in like a simulated space. They're in like a grammar production space, but it is very related. And uh, what we find is that the closer your action space is to like predicate argument structure in language, the better you generalize. 
for instance, if turning left requires a sequence, a long sequence of incremental like manipulation steps, then my model will will tend to memorize that long sequence and generalize poorer. That it, the longer the action sequence, the harder it is that I generalize to new combinations of things. And so, like this, what hearing you talk about this makes me think. Well, actually, it might be nice to have like a pick action predicate, pick up apple predicate. At least in the middle, I like that in the end, the the data, as you described it, requires grounding to something more fundamental. But still, from a modeling perspective, it probably would be useful to have something higher level in between that, that you then plan from to those lower level things. I completely agree. And I think without circling back too much to the, to the beginning of this conversation, one of the reasons I love this space is because of these discussions about abstraction, is because it makes it so clear that when we say like put a clean apple in the fridge, you can instantiate an abstract program right now that would be executable in any kitchen. And the then there's this question of, A, how did you formulate that sort of intermediary representation? And then B, how did you then convert that into something that was more you know explicit? And explicit here, again, being at various levels. So being more explicit, meaning you could now instantiate something that includes an action like grasp apple, but that's still not as explicit as if you were in a physical kitchen and you had to you know, instruct someone to actually perform this. And that would be different if it was a small child that maybe needed to use two hands versus it was you who could hold it with one. So you actually have the ability to take this abstract concept or this abstract goal and just really ground it to the appropriate scene and the appropriate agent and move through these levels and how do we build those and how do we, where do they come from? Is it our job to define them? That seems maybe problematic. And so my inclination is to say that this is ideally something that's a little bit more emergent. It's something that once we've done a lot of manipulation, we start to recognize some similarities. And so we realize like, oh, every time we someone talks about going to the left, it's sort of this region or it's this sequence of, of motor control actions. There's sort of a hull that I can sort of define of sort of space that would be considered left. And so maybe now I, I've kind of induced that concept. I now have that abstraction and then I'd like to sort of work up from there. But yeah, at a certain point, this gets AI complete and I don't have, I'm not going to make any claims about how we actually do this. Yeah, yeah. And that. I think the fundamental point here is is like at the end of the day, you want you don't want to hard code in the data set these particular decisions about abstractions. And so I really like that you're going down to like pixel maps. And so you're saying methods can compete. It's an even playing field. If you find the abstraction, like some intermediate abstraction layer helpful, then that's really interesting. You can demonstrate it. But it, if you don't want to do it, then like that's fine. And, and any any method at all that can solve the problem can compete here. That's yeah, a hundred percent. And these and these pixel level masks jumping around a little bit are quite difficult. So it turns out our favorite example of this is so so one of the beautiful things in Thor is that they've actually created sort of unique assets for every room. So even though they're the same in the sense that there's an apple in let's say every kitchen, they've actually gone ahead and, and sort of drawn and constructed a model for a new a new apple. In the case of something like a microwave. Most microwaves look pretty much the same. So that, if you can draw the pixel level mask for one microwave, you can do it for another. In the case of a sink faucet, they're all over the place. And so the process of realizing that 
oh, this one has a long gooseneck and this one is sort of a flat rectangle and this one has the, the, a lever attached to the, to the faucet and this one actually has two little knobs that are sort of set aside from it. That level of generalization is also fascinating, right? Because we're saying like, you don't actually just get to have the concept turn on the water. You need to figure out what about this metallic surface is sort of functionally necessary to do that. Yeah, good. Uh, talking about the abstractions, I think, brings us to our uh, next point of conversation. Alfred comes with uh, two levels of language directives, right? The high-level actions and the low-level language directives. So are the low-level ones those which correspond to the actions that the agent has to take? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So they're they're much closer. So they're much closer to what you would think of as as navigation. So what exists, excuse me, in the navigation space. So let me see, I can pull up an example really quickly. We've got something like, here's a, a goal, which is to put a clean sponge on a metal rack. So this would take place in a bathroom. And then the lower level instruction is going to correspond to every sub goal that's necessary to achieve that. So there's a sentence which is, go to the left and face the faucet side of the bathtub. So I have to understand what the bathtub is. I have to understand what the faucet is. I have to understand what it means to be on the left of it. But it's fundamentally just a navigation instruction. Then I have, you know, pick up the leftmost green sponge from the bathtub. So now I have to localize between the objects that are in front of me. I have to choose the one on the left. These are reasonably low level, and we're going to do this first. So that's the picking up. It's then the turning to where I'm going to actually place it. It's the putting it down, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, we're annotating at both of those levels so that the lower level is much closer to what currently exists in the literature, but the the higher level annotation is there because that's obviously what we would like to be able to handle. And that enables, hopefully, some future research on on bridging. How do you sort of instantiate plans from abstract goals? Right. So uh, ideally, you'd like uh, the agent to just get the high-level actions or high-level goals and be able to perform the low-level actions without explicit supervision there, right? That's right. And I think that's just because... Obviously, if we had a Butler robot, that's what we would we would want. And right now, people aren't you know going to do that because they don't actually have. So if you if you were talking to a robot, we've run in other work, we've run some experiments where we ask these kinds of things of of annotators. And if you tell them that you're interacting with a robot, they get really low level really quickly because their mental model of that agent of that conversational partner is one that doesn't understand anything. It's you know, or we've done something similar where we ask if you were to explain, for instance, cooking to a child. And so then all of a sudden you're very explicit about what things in the kitchen are hot and like what tools you need and things like this. And so we really want to mirror that here, which is that if current research is assuming that we have an incredibly naive sort of maybe even more so than a child that we're uh, sort of agent that we're talking to, how do we move to the point where we're talking to an adult, quote unquote, where we're talking to someone who where we can just specify the goal and have have them understand the environment in the world enough to actually accomplish it. Again, talking about the concrete process in which this data was generated, you had uh, high-level actions, which are essentially templates of actions that are applied to specific objects, specific object categories, right? And you had uh, expert demonstrations from AI to Thor, uh, which was then used to generate uh, the language directives uh, using crowdsourcing, correct? So uh, how were the expert demonstrations produced? So those are from this planner. So yeah, so what we did was 
we would take, we again, we want to have some abstraction and generalization is sort of the key. That's always sort of the goal in the background. So we take something like, I'm just glancing at, at the environment. And so off the top of my head, I'm putting a book on a, on a desk in a specific bedroom. This is a very general, simple concept. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to instantiate that in many bedrooms. So I'm going to say like, if you understand what it means to put a, a book on a desk, then it shouldn't matter the orientation of all the objects in that room. Then what I'm going to do is even within that specific room, I'm going to instantiate it three times. So I'm going to ran, so all the furniture is going to stay the same, but the various other distractor objects are going to move around where the book starts is going to move around. Because again, if you understand the goal, that really shouldn't matter. And then for each one of those individual instances or random initializations, we're going to annotate it three different times. Because if you, again, to repeating myself, but if you understand the goal, then like three different phrasings of that same task in that same environment really shouldn't be a problem. And so what you end up with is for any specific, what we call sort of a tuple. So any specific high level goal, including room, you're going to have basically nine language instantiations. You're going to have three different room initializations and each of those three different annotations all describing the same thing. And so as much as possible, ideally an agent is going to be able to, to see that and is going to be able to connect those pieces. Yeah, I'd like to move on to uh, the models that the baseline models built for Alfred and uh, what you hope to see in the competition that is being held at ECCV. Uh, but before we get there, I had a quick question about the dataset details. So the crowd workers were shown just the expert demonstrations, right? They were not given uh, the high level goals and they were asked to annotate uh, the language directives given the expert demonstrations, right? Right. So we, we broke up the, uh, the entire video into these sub goals, which is why there is a, a lang instruction for each piece. And then we also had them provide an overall, this overall, right. And so we don't have answer your question in advance. We don't have issues where people sort of misunderstood what the goal was. We do have some cases where they've maybe misidentified one of the objects. So for example, a simulated egg and a simulated potato look the same apparently to a lot of people. And so we, we do have some things like this, but nothing that would therefore sort of fundamentally change the either the goals or, or things like this. And that's because these are very simple. I can sort of rattle them off, but it's pick something up, put it somewhere, stack something and put it somewhere, put two of an object somewhere, clean something, heat something, cool something or examine something in the light. So the last one is simply bringing something over to like a lamp and turning on the lamp so you can see it better. So they're, 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 quite, they're quite simple um, kinds of tasks. Thanks. Let's talk about the baseline models that were built for Alfred. Uh, uh, can you give us a brief overview of uh, the class of models that were tried? Yeah, so I'm gonna preface this by saying that what we've done is not brilliant. So this is sort of seek to seek style baseline that's in the paper and then some people have I think have been working on various ways to extend this the let me break down what those pieces are so I'm going to try to do this I guess by time step so if you have a visual scene you have some image that you're looking at in front of you you build some some summary vector of that basically and you're now need to decide what you're going to do next so you have a language instruction and you have some history of what you've done up until this point. And you're going to use your, your hidden state, for instance, in this case of like this seek-to-seek -seek model, so you have some, some uh, hidden state from the previous time step 
to reweight the language instruction. Keeping in mind, right, that the language instruction here, as we've been noting, is, is a full paragraph. So the vast majority of the instruction is no longer relevant or is not yet relevant. So what about what I've done up until now is going to let me um, sort of isolate what the actual next instruction is. I'm then going to so combine my previous action, my reweighting of the language, and my visual perception to update my, my hidden state and predict the next action to take. If the next action is something like putting an object somewhere, picking up an object, then you also have a deconvolution to predict this pixel level mask for, for the environment. If it's something like navigation, then there is no, there's no mask. And so therefore that that's ignored. That part of the output is ignored. And so what we've proposed there is pretty simple. And then what we've tried to do is tack onto it some of the kind of best practices that we've seen from the navigation world. The, the single biggest innovation in that space being this notion of a progress monitor. So the really hard thing, or one of the really hard things again, is that if you have an entire paragraph of text and you've got these very rich visual signals that you're getting you know, dozens of, you have to learn these correspondences. And so having this auxiliary loss that basically helps you learn that alignment is, has, has proven pretty useful. In our case, we can do this in a couple of ways. So we can do this in terms of raw actions. So you can imagine every single time I take one step, I've progressed you know, some percentage towards, towards completion. Or we can do it at the level of sort of sub goals, at the level of sort of post conditions. So having washed something, I've actually sort of accomplished a, a major step, which is maybe more significant than having taken one or two navigation steps. And so we, we play with both of those as auxiliary losses to help kind of regularize the attention. And we do see some, some benefits there. But full disclosure, because it's really obvious when you look at our results, our models are terrible. And so there's a huge gap there. And part of it is that, again, that technology was uh, progress monitoring, I think is really important, but it's also how do you retrofit it to these much longer instructions and to these much larger action spaces and so forth? So it's it's not as simple as when you were simply trying to learn an alignment on eight uh, steps in, in a standard navigation. And so we, we have quite a long ways to go there. On that front, we have a long ways to go on these predicted masks. So the difference between our performance in a seen environment versus an unseen environment pretty dramatic. So there's, there's a number of, we can go into, but there's a number of, of places where there's some, some pretty obvious issues that have to be addressed. Right. What's the average number of steps in, per instance in Alfred? So I think it's roughly 55, though I would, I should read my own paper to get you something more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the point here is that it's a fairly big number for many of these models. Yeah, and and then the language instructions, um, I think in terms of uh, tokens, is over 100 on average. So again, I think that this is one of these things which maybe I'll harp on for one second, because I think that if you're used to seek-to-seek models in the context of, for instance, machine translation, you might be thinking like, all right, this doesn't really sound that bad. But we we really do have a lot of difficulty in this sort of multimodal space of figuring out how to do those alignments off of those of those ResNet features. And those are very rich, um, like 2000 to 2048, you know, or more vectors. And so there's a lot of little things that a model can overfit to very quickly. And so learning actually how to do this properly has turned out to be quite difficult for the literature at large. 
I might have missed something earlier in when you were describing the data set. So I, when you said there were like 100 tokens in the language, I was expecting more like 10 or less because you were talking about high-level goals. I guess when you say there are like 100 tokens, you mean you have, you said you got annotations for like the individual steps. And so this is like the concatenation that you're talking about? That's right. That's right. Yes, correct. Correct. So the the high-level goals, I think on average, are less than 10. You're, you're absolutely right. But then the, the sort of full paragraph of instructions is is over 100. And so the task is not, I just give you a high-level goal and you do it. It's Oh, I would love if that was the task. But I, I mean, I, I think our performance is in the, you know, single percentage success rates, even when we have the entire, the entire paragraph. Okay, okay. Uh, you said 55 actions, and I got really nervous because like that, when, for instance, when you map language to SQL, SQL statements have lots and lots of tokens, and this is where you get really, really bad memorization in the model and really poor, I guess, a lot of memorization and, re- and really poor generalization. And so I was imagining very similar things. But yeah, if you have like a 100 tokens describing 55 actions, that seems more reasonable from a parsing perspective. Yeah, and I don't, and I, we didn't create it to be impossible. <laughs> we, we, you know, so, so I, I mean, we're hoping that it's really more just a, an intermediary step on this path, right? Uh, right. To make things concrete, the, the kinds of supervision you're getting for the models is, at least for the baseline models that you present in the paper, it's the low-level actions paired with the high-level goals and, of course, the visual inputs uh, from each of these steps. And, uh, right, I mean, and also the auxiliary losses you described based on the, the progress uh, bars, right? That that's clear, and and also I think uh, one of the results in, in your paper shows that the high level goals actually don't help much, right? The high level goals are, I mean, models uh, built with the high level goal supervision perform as well as those with just the low level goals, right? Yeah, that's right. We're yeah, we're not at, at the point. I mean, these numbers are also so so to give people some context in sort of task success. So this is. There's a couple of metrics or sort of two that matter uh, most, which are overall success rate. So did you just achieve, you know, actually achieve the task perfectly? Then there is kind of um, a slight relaxation, which is this goal condition. So how many of these sort of sub goals did you achieve? So maybe you didn't get it into the, the apple into the fridge, but you at least cleaned it or something. And for a scene environment, actually achieving the task, our best performance is uh, like 3.7%. So it's it's quite quite low, and that translates to zero percent in an unseen <laughs> environment. Or I think on the test set, it may, it's like 04 percent for for the unseen unseen sort of uh, best case. And there's a second set of metrics, which is where you reweight both the success rate and the goal conditions based off of the the path length. So you could maybe have achieved these things, but you, you know, took a circuitous route. And so we're going to penalize you a little bit for that. And so those numbers are going to be a little bit lower, but overall, sorry to, to close that out. It's a test set task success rate of like 4%, a goal conditioned task success rate of like 9.4% in seen environments and then 0.4 and 7% uh, respectively in unseen environments. So the takeaway there, ignoring all the numbers, is everything's under 10%, and in some case, under 5%. So there's a huge margin versus humans performing um, upwards of 90% on these things. So that's, that, that gives you a little bit of a, a sense for sort of just how much, how much headroom there is. 
and also to be clear, we really did not want the numbers to be that low. <laughs> so we really did. We tried a whole bunch of different techniques and we did lots of parameter search sweeps and we, we you know, we really wanted to have a stronger baseline than this. But it's hard and we're also hindered a little bit because which was on purpose because we can't do search. So you know, I think that if you removed the um, sort of state changes that are that are immutable, then you could run a search algorithm where you would have an agent which would maybe not be as efficient, but it could try a couple different paths. It could sort of rewind, things like this. And we would start to see those success rates go up. But when when you're in a situation where a single change is not recoverable, then you really have to get it right the first time. And that that makes this whole thing much more difficult. I mean, can't you have some kind of search internal to the agent that like yeah. tries to model its own environment? That's so a hundred percent. Yes. So, so I love this. It's a huge research question. I don't want to misquote various papers, but there are some people who have been thinking about this. It's a bit difficult because where is the line at which you basically have to recreate a simulator in your head? And sort of at what fidelity and what does that look like? But totally, totally valid. We have some work. So I did some work with um, Chris Paxton at NVIDIA on sort of simple manipulation where you're just trying to move blocks around where you take an instruction, you take a scene, and you need to roll out what the next few steps of the world would look like, including a deconvolution that actually visualizes the world. So if I were to take this action, what would the scene look like? And that was with simple blocks and it was it was already difficult. But there's definitely people thinking about this or how do you put sort of maybe priors over what the world might look like and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, right. So are there any other high level observations from your experiments that you'd like to mention? No, I think I think we've been really I think this conversation is thankfully sort of really focused in on what I think are some of the key aspects, which is what does it mean to build intermediate representations which are actually useful for for language? And that's that's kind of one of the key research questions we're hoping that the environment enables is we both want future research to increasingly ground it. So we're maybe eventually, you, so you get rid of the grid, you introduce more sort of fine grain manipulation. That's one direction. But then I think as, as language people, for us, the question is, what does it mean to build representations which are meaningful as intermediaries and think about abstraction? Because we too often perhaps treat language as a monolith. We too often sort of think, well, it's it's text, and I don't think about the fact that left and right is both a low-level distinction and political party affiliation. Like, what does it mean to sort of have access to all those different, those meanings at the same time? In this case, maybe more concretely, move between the kinds of instructions and levels of granularity that are necessary for different abilities of an agent. Great, yeah. Uh, given that you have uh, a public leaderboard for uh, for Alfred and that you're co-organizing a workshop based on it, what do you think are the next steps to actually fill the huge gap between models and uh, human performance? Yeah, so I think we've we've brought up several of these things a little bit already. So one thing that we did not do, and it was partially because, again, it's quite difficult, is um, initializing with self-play. So... I believe Mohit, the first author, was telling me that there's some work maybe out of Kristen Grauman's lab on learning uh, basic affordances in the Thor environment, right? So if you have an agent that goes around and it first learns 
how to open and what it can open and what it can pick up, then that gives you a sort of initial semantics of the world um, and maybe the the sort of simplified physics of this world to learn language on top of. And that that seems really promising um, for a-linguistic or pre-linguistic knowledge. There's also, we were saying, people thinking about to what extent does the task get simplified if you have panoramic views? So how much are we hindering ourselves by using sort of egocentric? And so I think some people are, are looking looking at that question. And then the really big thing is this notion of memory. And so this notion of, of, of state tracking. And so if people are able to come up with better sort of maybe hierarchical representations that allow them to track sort of what they've done and, and, and recover if they, if they make small mistakes, things like this, that would be, that would be super awesome. So those are the kinds of things I'm hoping for. I obviously don't want this task to, to last forever. I'd like to see, I don't want to say have it killed. That's a little bit, you know, dramatic, but basically I would love to see some innovations that really just shoot the performance up, um, hopefully in ways that we find are generalizable so that the, the sort of these bars can get pushed. So the language complexity can increase, the task complexity can increase, and then we can see whether or not the innovations, in the same way that we found that progress monitor was helpful, but not as much as you would hope, because when we move from navigation to instruction following more generally, it doesn't generalize. What are the kind of innovations that do exist or that are created for this environment that will help uh, more realistic settings? And which are the ones where we, we learned that we made a simplifying uh, assumption about the world that was problematic and that it doesn't actually uh, you know reconcile nicely with the, with the real world. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. That's all the questions I had for you. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? No, I know this was super this is super fun. I just hope that you know I think as a, as a general push, I think that we're at a really fun place right now, sort of technologically and tool wise that we can do these kinds of things, that there are several different simulators. And we, we didn't even, we didn't talk about the sort of wide space of simulators. So Habitat is the other really big one that's been mostly thinking about navigation. But there's also like, so NVIDIA Isaac is the simulator that allows you to do sort of more uh, fine-grained manipulation, Pi Bullet, things like this have all this physics that's involved. We're, we're kind of getting to a place now where we've got a lot of really good tools many of which can even do sim to real transfer pretty well for, for specific hardware. We also have so many wonderful off-the-shelf vision technologies that you can, I mean, torch vision, you can just import and all of a sudden you've got these, these features, which are maybe not perfect. They may not be, you know, ideally, as we were saying earlier, there'd be some ability to allow for information flow between back and forth between the language and the vision. But we're at a place now where if people are interested in grounded language or if they're interested in multimodality, they can basically pull things off the shelf and start playing with it, which just wasn't the case a few years ago. And particularly when it comes to these simulators, it's buying what I just saw the the um, Boston Dynamics is now selling their their little four-legged robot for like, I think, $75,000. You know, you, you don't need that, that kind of cash. You can basically pull the spec for one of these robots into a pretty good physics engine and start playing around with and seeing to what extent you can you can tra train language in that space and you, and you can connect your language models to it. And so mostly just a plug that, that uh, we're at a sort of pretty cool moment, I think, as a community to start doing this. And that I'm just sort of a young newcomer to this, that Nick Morella Lapata has been doing grounded language and multimodality for ages. Ray Mooney's been doing this, uh, all of Cynthia and Joyce's work. There's a lot of people who've, who really sort of paved the path here. And now we get to benefit from that. 
this has been a really fun conversation, kind of making me want to switch my research area. <laughs> that, that's that's the whole goal. No, no, no. I think I think I don't mean to demean on on NLP more generally. I think there's a lot of obviously untackled stuff in NLP broadly that's text based. But I do think we're at a pretty fun moment where we get to do we get to do NLP for AI, um, not just NLP for text, and that's pretty cool. Great. Yeah, that's a great note to end, end this conversation on. Uh, thanks a lot, Jonathan. Yeah, of course.